excuse me, this advanced patient care theory one unit for part 11b. Uh, okay, let's talk about uh, tachyarrhythmias. And um, I'm trying to remember which. There we go. Good. So, uh, sinus tack very quickly. So, causes you're well familiar with. Sinus tacks are usually some sort of reflex tachycardia because of volume depletion or increased metabolic demands because of uh, the patient's febrile or, um, and um, other causes include heart failure, hypoxia, hypoxemia, anemias, you know, where they've got decreased oxygen carrying capacity, uh, any shock states, any sort of uh, ingestion or injection of stimulants. Uh, and pain, of course, and uh, or fear, anxiety, and the treatment is to focus on the underlying cause, not the dysrhythmia. Right. The the only exception might be if um, if your STEMI patient uh, arrives at the PCI center with a sinus tack of 110 or 120, they're probably going to give them or her a beta blocker to settle the heart rate down or give them some morphine to sort of address the anxiety issue, the pain issue. So, so we treat the underlying cause with either volume replacement or correction of hypoxemia, sedation, some cases for, you know, like uh, cocaine. Uh, the treatment for cocaine is um, the, one that, the one thing that kills them typically is um, hyperthermia. So we cool them down and we give them sedation, lots and lots of sedation. Uh, analgesia for pain. Uh, oh, let's go over the medical directive. So I'm going to um, unplug the, just pause this for a second in the labs? Any points of question? Yeah, okay. This yeah, I was going to say there's probably uh, a lot more emphasis than need be on the whole concept of VT versus aberrancy. If you see, you see a wide complex regular tachyrrhythmia with a discernible P waves, it's almost always VT. So, so what's that? Especially if they're older, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember now. There's a good podcast in. Um, do you listen? Any of you listen to uh, the emergency cases from Sunnybrook? Yeah, great, great podcast. And there's a really good podcast from them on SVT with versus aberrancy with um, Dr. Dorian and uh, a couple of others. So you get the chance to listen to that. Um, so, tachyarrhythmias indications. So symptomatic tach tachyarrhythmia. And um, for vagal maneuvers, uh, they've got to be at least 18, normal tensive, heart rate of at least um, 150, and uh, narrow complex, regular rhythm. For adenosine, same thing essentially. For amiodarone, it's got to be a wide complex with at least a rate of 120. So VT is not considered a legit VT unless it's at least 120. Technically, if it's a wide complex uh, tachycardia of 100, 110, it's still a VT, but most people don't consider it a um, legitimate VT unless it's at least 120. And, you know, how patients present hemodynamically really depends on a variety of things, right? How old they are, uh, any underlying cardiac disease or, or um, injury or um, necrotic tissue, uh, comorbidities, and so on and so forth. Um, I had a patient once who was, he was a trauma patient, and um, they were about to give him blood products in this outlying hospital. Um, he had an AFib, and his blood pressure was, would drop down into the 70s whenever his heart rate exceeded about 120. And um, they were, they'd ordered blood products, and they were about to hang them. And I took a look at the hemoglobin, and I said, is, 
is hemoglobin's like 180, uh, which is really high actually. Uh, we d he definitely doesn't need blood products. Let's let's not. Yeah, let's not. He's polycythemic, right? Let's not give him. Let's not give him blood products. He just he. He just simply decompensated when his heart rate got above 120. Uh, so we just managed him with analgesia because he had he had rib fractures and femur fracture and you know he was he was unbelted obviously and he was found on the, the f basically on the floor of his car <laughs> after it collided and uh, he just needed some analgesia so he wouldn't decompensate so. Um, so some patients with slow heart rates will decompensate. Some patients with slow hearts will be hemodynamically stable and asymptomatic and some not, so it just varies. Lidocaine we don't give very often. Um, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a good podcast, I think, uh, uh, on ERCast, uh, uh, or it might be uh, EM Credit, I can't remember which, but there's a physician somewhere in the ER in the U.S. who um, they don't stock any um, narcotics at all in their ER department. And uh, so I know some of you guys wrote a paper on uh, non-opioid analgesia. Well, he gives um, uh, IV acetaminophen and IV lidocaine uh, for pain management and a couple of other things. And most paramedic services, when they start an IO, they, give, uh, they inject IV lidocaine into the bone before they start infusing fluids because it diminishes the pain, acts as a, a local anesthetic, right? But uh, we, don't, we don't do it here. This is why I think it's fun if you go to the U.S. to arrange rideouts with paramedic crews. I, I've done it, I do it almost every time I do, I go to the U.S. and it's so much fun. And you just learn these little things that they do differently. Sometimes worse, often worse, sometimes better. <laughs> sometimes just different and you go, oh, what's that piece of equipment? I've never seen that before. So you get some, you get some, Great insights, yeah. Um, speaking with um, some medics and base hospital, they stress the importance of withholding amiodarone if your patient's presenting in for SOGS. Mm. So considering how dangerous it is to give it, I don't, like, I just don't understand why it's either not a contraindication or addressed in the companion document. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just, like, something that they're, like, we assume you know. Do you know what I mean? Where it's, it's like not, it's to the point where it's like not even like lidocaine's preferential, mm -hmm. but if you only have amio, don't give the amio. Yeah. So it's just like, it Yeah, and. Yeah, base, like why hasn't base hospital addressed it in there? Yeah, you have to ask the base hospital. Um, one of my frustrations with the directives is, is they list certain things that as contraindications, which are not at all contraindications, they're just more conditions than anything else. And then they omit. Uh, uh, contraindications. So, for example, <coughs> for contraindications for adenosine, says allergy and sensitivity to adenosine. Okay, fair enough. Um, I don't think it's, I, I'm not sure it's even possible to have an allergy to adenosine because it's a naturally occurring nucleotide, much like epinephrine yeah. and, and dextrose. People don't have allergies to those, but that's a default contraindication for everything you administer, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, so they list. They, they list uh, patient taking dipyridamol or carbamazepine, but they don't mention Agronox, and Agronox is a combination of aspirin and dipyridamol. So the bottom line is, uh, so not all contraindications are listed uh, is what I'm getting at, but the bottom line is if you're gonna give a drug and you're looking through their drugs and you see a drug that you don't recognize, make sure you look it up. Make sure, confirm it's not, you know, uh, an NSAID or something like Agronox, um, those sorts of things. 
So yeah, I agree. That should be in the companion document, but um, or they should just leave it out and just have a caveat that says we should be aware of the contraindications for all the drugs because it it would end up being a pretty extensive document if they listed all the contraindications and all the precautions uh, in there. So it's a good idea to review your drugs on a regular basis and just sort of keep up to date. But uh, you know, before you give a drug, make sure you check. What is the thinking? I don't know what the thinking is on amio and stuff. Amio, um, majorly is a class 3 antiridin, so potassium channel blocker. Versaz is Sodium channel blocker. Versaz is typically from a QT prolongation. Yep. So if you give them a potassium channel blocker, it's going to prolong the QT. And sodium, um, lidocaine is a sodium channel blocker, and class 1A and C prolong QT, but it's a class 1B, I think, and it actually shortens the QT. So lidocaine would actually help so and amyl would actually make it worse. <laughs> so like you guys have lidocaine, <laughs> so you don't have to report it. But it's Toronto, we only yeah. have Yeah, Lidocaine's a good drug for a lot of different things. Yeah. What's interesting is in you're just making it worse. You're not going to make it better. You're just going to... So if you have a cardiac arrest patient in torsades, because it's rare that you have a, a live patient in torsades, or they won't be alive for very long. Um, yeah, the other withhold amio yeah. and just do the like like do the defibrillations and CPR yeah. and all that. Yeah. yeah. Follow up question on that. Sure. We sync um, <laughs> wide complex. Yeah. Cardio version. Yeah. Why do we not sync? Retap. Like, why do we not sync when we deliver a shock in a <laughs> arrest patient? Like a VF patient? A VT patient. Oh, VT patient. Yeah, it's it's all about it's all about risk versus benefit. The thinking is that they're in arrest. Don't waste any time with the. Yeah, it doesn't take any time at all. But um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess the thinking is you're dealing with a you're dealing with a um, uh, a VSA patient, and um, you know the worst that can happen is you render the patient asystolic, which is exactly kind of what you want to do anyway. But couldn't you um, put them into a torsades from a VT? No, you're more likely to put them into a VF. Torsades, there's usually an underlying cause, as Vanessa was saying, like a long QT or uh, some kind of drug effect. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, they're not going to get any more dead. And in the interest of saving time, the, the benefits and, you know, the feeling, I guess, like on the part of the AHA so the benefits outweigh the risks. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, no one's done a randomized control trial to, uh, to evaluate synchronized versus unsynchronized. And, and you do have to remember to hit the sync button. And while some of us may remember to hit the sync button, some of us might not at 3 o'clock in the morning in a VTRS. So it's just simpler to just go with unsynchronized cardioversion. Um, unless they have a pulse, then we must synchronize. Um, so uh, what else? Um, Amio, yeah, it's interesting. Eh? The only uh, contraindication is allergy or sensitivity to amio. No mention of torsade to point. Um, the thing with torsade too is a lot of people don't recognize torsade. They just see it as a VF and shock it. Um, the one little trick I learned about torsade is sometimes it looks like a coarse VF, but uh, the uh, the space between the QRSs has got to be five millimeters. If it's smaller than that, it's probably VF. 
Uh, if it's shorter than that, it's probably VF. If it's five millimeters, then you might be looking at a torsade if you've got that twisting of the points. You know. Um, so what else to say? Mandatory patch points. So patch to BHP for authorization to proceed with amiodarone or lidocaine, uh, or if um, monomorphic Y-complex regular tachyarrhythmia for adenosine. Yeah. So some some uh, some VTs are adenosine sensitive. Uh, sometimes you get you can get wolf Parkinson White with um, um, with um, conduction through the AV node and retrograde conduction up the accessory, or sorry, anterior grade conduction down the accessory pathway, which would give you a Y-complex tachyarrhythmia with WBW. And adenosine is likely to be maybe effective with those patients. Um. Unlikely unless they know they have it, though, that you'd be able to see it. Yeah. Tell you cardioverted them and then did it totally. Yeah, that's right. Although I've I've had two uh, patients, both in their forties, interestingly, who had uh, SVT for the very first time in their lives, had no history of it. So, but you're right. Most cases, patients who have SVT know they have it. They have a history of it, and they've received drugs before for it. And uh, or they've got WPW. They're diagnosed usually at some point earlier in their life. So. Later in life, you're almost dealing, almost always dealing with a VT when you're dealing with a Y complex. So for um, for amio, um, it's uh, 150 milligrams can be repeated twice after 10 minutes, and we push it slowly because amio can cause hypotension. So we usually push it over 10 minutes. I just draw it up in a syringe and push it slowly. Uh, for lidocaine, initial dose is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, subsequent dose is 0.75 milligrams per kilogram. It's uh, 50 milligrams in a, f I think it's a 5 mil preload, right? So the math is slightly complicated. But, uh, for, lidocaine? for lidocaine, yeah. So is it 105? Okay, so 105 mLs. So, so just know that the um, that's 20 milligrams per mL, right? So uh, the simple way to calculate the formula is want over have equals give. So, you know, calculate what you want based on the patient's weight. Round the weight, you know, if the patient tells you they weigh, you know, X number of pounds, which works out to 73 kilos, just knock them down to 70 kilos. It's a lot easier. Or bump them up to 80 if they're, you know, whatever, wherever they are. What are your thoughts on giving? <coughs> Like hanging an amyl or giving lidocaine in a patient who has like paroxysmal or like very frequent, like if they were in bigeminal PVCs or they're having bouts of VTAC that are like terminating. Yeah, so you know, bigeminal rhythms rarely will warrant giving them an antiarrhythmic. Um, you know, they say you can give um, antiarrhythmic for ectopics that are hemodynamically significant, but it, oftentimes it's difficult to gauge whether the you know if they're having s the if they're, they're they've got a low blood pressure and they're having a lot of PVCs, is it actually the PVCs that are causing the low blood pressure? Um, and uh, so I would say unlikely. But uh, couplets and short runs of VT is another story. That's uh, that's a patient who has a higher risk of deteriorating into a more malignant arrhythmia. Um, so yeah, that might be worth a phone call if if they're you know s really symptomatic or a little on the low blood pressure with short runs of VT. Um, 
So with synchronized cardioversion, um, you know, they say start at 100 joules. But just be aware, if you've got a VT and um, you contact a base hospital doc and the doc wants you to um, cardiovert at 50 joules, even though your directive says start at 100 joules, um, as little as 25 joules can be effective VT. The one um, dysrhythmia that's resistant to cardioversion is AFib. So AFib, the consensus is requires a minimum 100 joules to start. Uh, but if a BHP says start at 75 joules for a VT or something, or an SVT, um, then you start at 75. I'm not going to argue with the doc. That's not unreasonable. Uh, but you should know that from the HA guidelines. So not a bad idea to take an ACLS course at some point. You know, it's a little different from your routine CME, and it's worthwhile taking. In fact, um, you guys know John Lee. He runs ACLS and PALS. If, if you get the opportunity to do it with John Lee, you'll get it a lot cheaper, and he's a brilliant educator. So have you guys met John Lee? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. Did he open that up for you guys? He did. Yes. He did, eh? Yeah. Uh, worth taking, for sure, if you're if you're able to. Um, I can't remember what this video is, but uh, let's check it out. See if it. It actually works. Oh, that's, that's looking good. Oh, it's only a two-minute video, too. Hello, Reverend Study. Um, I'm also a consultant at the Royal Devon Exeter Hospital in the southwest of England. Hi. Um, I see from your heart trace. This is a modified Valsalva. Do we need to watch this? Or have you seen this? No. The revert, yeah. You've seen it? Okay, yeah. You've written papers on it, some of you. So we can skip that. Um, I think this might be just an article. Let me just take a look here. Yeah, that's just Valsalva versus modified Valsalva. Okay, so we'll skip that too. So SVTs, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, if you got an unsustained SVT, there's no point in doing a modified Valsalva, and there's no point in giving adenosine. You know, it's like whack-a-mole. Because uh, right, adenosine's only... <laughs> so, no, I don't... But you know what? Uh, we really need, and those of you who wrote a paper on this, I think would agree, we really need a calcium channel blocker for SVT. Uh, one, because uh, adenosine has a pretty high conversion rate, like 70 to 80%, but it has a, also a high recurrence rate, at least 40 to 60% recurrence rate, so, uh, which is not good. Um, um, the, uh, just, just for fun, um, you guys wouldn't know this, but uh, what's going on here with the slides? Oh, I know what's going on here, sorry. Um, Years ago, when we first got adenosine, the preloads were, um, there was a problem with the preloads. And uh, when I went to give adenosine one time, I, I put the preload together and I was holding it down. And by the time I got to the patient, it had all leaked out the syringe. <laughs> so I got to the patient and I'm looking at it, it's completely empty. It's like, what the hell? I was just uh, grateful I had a second preload of six milligrams. Cause <laughs> It was all on the carpet. I could see this little trickle on the, on the lady's carpet. Anyway, they, uh, they, changed, they changed the preload, so 
so it wouldn't leak. But uh, but after that, I got into the habit of holding the preload up like this, you know, like a candle, so it wouldn't uh, fall out on me. Uh, so when it comes to uh, unsustained uh, SVTs, in terms of reporting and documenting, you should uh, make a mental note of how long these bets last, how frequently they occur per minute roughly or every five minutes, and is the patient symptomatic with them? Um, how fast are they as well? Signs and symptoms. Uh, is there anything that precipitates them? Do they have a history of PSVT or SVT? And um, Etiology, most common etiology is AV nodal reentry. The second most common etiology is one of the pre-excitation syndromes, of which Wolf Parkinson White is the most common of the pre-excitation syndromes. And you want to find out how they've been treated in the past. Um, and um, has it worked? What works? What doesn't work? I love the idea of a sublingual um, calcium channel blocker. That's a brilliant, brilliant thing. I mean, ideally you want an IV in these patients anyway, just in case they crash on you. But um, uh, sublingual um, calcium channel blocker makes a lot of sense. So let's look at this case. We've got um, a 23-year-old male who's pale and clammy, dizzy and weak, uh, denies any shortness of breath or nausea vomiting. He's, got, he's had previous similar episodes. Adenosine has worked once or twice before. Neurologically, he's er alert and oriented to person, place, and time. What's the heart rate here? 180. So, 300, 150, and 180. So, just over 150. 150 is the second one. Oh, okay. So, yeah, 300, 150, 180. You come back a line, you're at 180. Use the 300 method, right? So, 300, 150. And it's somewhere between um, 300 and 150. So uh, that's 150 divided by five small squares equals 30 beats per millimeter. So that's 150 plus one, 180. That's why you use that method as opposed to the six second strip. Just first line So let me just um, magnify this a bit. Okay. So here's one. So here's one that falls close to a dark line, right? So the next one would be 300. The next one would be 150. Come back one that's 180. Probably slightly higher than 180 because this one's just off the line. Does that make sense? Okay. Good. Okay. So we got a heart rate um, 180. And uh, there are no discernible P waves. Um, I would caution you about looking at things like the glitches just before the QRS. Those are just glitches. They're not um, any evidence of atrial depolarization. Um, my general rule is if, if you have to squint to see what it is, then it doesn't exist. Um, all we know is that this is a narrow complex, rapid, regular tachyarrhythmia without discernible P waves. Um, and that's really all you need to know. So chest is clear, BP is 104 on 70, SpO2 is 99 on room air, and the rhythm's an SVT with a heart rate of approximately 180. And the treatment would be? Yeah, so Valsava. How many times do you do Valsava? Twice. And um, I, I've done Valsava dozens of times without any success until I did modified Valsava and then it worked. I was so excited I nearly peed my pants. It was the best thing ever. Um, was that related or just? 
<laughs> it was exciting. Now, you just got to remember if you've got uh, if you got a monitor bracket that uh, the person who's lifting her legs doesn't lift the legs into the underside of the monitor bracket and give them like bilateral tib-fib fractures or something. So just be careful there. He's going to have to swivel them over so the legs go up uh, beyond that. Someone had a hand raised? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's say you do your valsalvis and then treat with adenosine and they don't revert. Yeah. Uh, would it be appropriate to the attempt valsalva during transport or or just transport yeah because if they're not hemodynamically unstable we're not worried anyway so uh, so we just transport yeah two valsalva attempts six milligrams of adenosine that doesn't work 12 milligrams of adenosine um, the only caveat here is that if if you give adenosine or you do a valsalva maneuver and the heart rate slows down a little bit and you notice it's actually a fib not SVT don't give a second dose of adenosine because you'll get called into the base hospital. And, and usually the medical director will just, not that it's a terrible thing to give adenosine to AFib, but the medical director will be thinking like, what the hell's wrong with you? How did you not recognize AFib? That's gonna be the concern, right? We, when I worked for the base hospital, that's what happened. We had a guy came in uh, because he'd given it, he, he did a Valsalva, the heart rate slowed down, you can clearly see AFib. And then he gave adenosine, which made no sense. And then he gave a second dose of adenosine. And his argument was he just thought it would do no harm. And the medical director said, well, you just spent close to 300 bucks to do no harm. Why? Why would you do that? Like, you, you should know that adenosine doesn't work on AFib, right? No, only on the internet. <laughs> yeah. They're, prob they're probably going to be hemodynamically unstable, yeah. I think I've got a sample of one of those. Um, so here's another. Um, Nine-year-old female having dizzy spells at school. She's pale, occasionally nauseated, uh, no medical history, neurologically alert, oriented, times three. Heart rate is whatever it is. Uh, respiration's 24, chest is clear, BP's good, SPO2 is good, and room air. So she's got intermittent bouts of SVT, right? Yeah. So we want to know, there's, there's really nothing you can do for her. Valsalva, we don't do adenosine, we don't do calcium channel blocker. What'd you, see? What'd you say? Send her home? <laughs> calcium channel blocker would work, but we don't carry calcium channel blockers. And um, so she's probably going to be pretty anxious about this. Having palpitations as a nine-year-old would be pretty, uh, pretty scary. But um, the, uh, you know, when you see this, um, you start to wonder whether this is a navy nodal reentry or whether it's a WPW. And uh, kids often get diagnosed at about this age with WPW. But you'd have to do a 12 lead. And to do a 12 lead, ideally, you'd, if, if you're going to do a 12 lead and it's not necessary, uh, but if you're going to do one, you want to have a teacher in the back of the ambulance with you, or a parent, obviously, for that age. And um, do you know what you look for uh, that would be suggestive of WPW? Delta wave and what else? Yeah, short PR. Yeah, that's the key. It's a short PR and a delta wave. So, so you might see it in some leads and not in other leads, but you look at all 12 leads, and if you see like a, a short PR, and a delta wave. That's an exaggerated delta. Um, 
that would be suggestive of uh, WPW. And what's, what happens is um, with WPW, they've got an accessory pathway, right? The bundle of Kent, which could be anterior, lateral, posterior, but it's usually runs along the epicardial surface. And um, it, it may be dormant until something triggers it, like a PAC, or it may be active um, where um, you've got an impulse traveling in this direction and an impulse traveling in that direction, and the two waves of depolarization meet, and consequently you get this short PR in the delta wave. They call this a fusion. Um, so if you see uh, fusion, um, and this is one of the things we look for for uh, syncope, high-risk syncope. You look for evidence of WPW. And I've seen WPW in a 30-year-old who was undiagnosed, which was cool. Yeah. Um, is there any difference in the way that we treat WPW and SVT? Uh, no. No, we treat it the Not same. at all dangerous to give the adenosine or anything to WPW? No. Um, the, the risks are minimal and um, if the only caveat to that is if you've got a narrow complex WPW we don't worry about Valsalva or adenosine if you've got a wide complex then you want a patch um, so there's there may be a concern with the wide complex and the wide complex right yeah so a wide complex will be the WPWs who have conduction this way and up that way and because it's coming from one ventricle left or right you get slow depolarization muscle cell to muscle cell so they they uh, those are the wide complex WPWs um, the narrow complex are the ones who conduct in this direction uh, and those ones we don't worry about it's more of a worry for uh, uh, giving calcium channel blockers like for apamil uh, because verapamil uh, may, if it doesn't disrupt the tachyarrhythmia, you're still left with a negative inotropic effect. So now you've got a tachyarrhythmia with a weakened uh, muscle. And so that's a concern. Adenosine's not as big a concern because it has such a, such a short half-life. And um, so we don't worry about it too much. But you get a Y-complex tachyarrhythmia, just patch. Um, so, um, AV node will re-entry just as a refresher. So if you look at the AV node under a microscope, you've got uh, these patchy areas of non-conductive tissue, and so lots of potential circular pathways. So in order for re-entry to occur, there has to be one, a potential circular pathway, two, uh, a unidirectional block in part of that pathway where the cells are refractory, just haven't fully recovered from the previous impulse. And three, there has to be uh, slow retrograde <coughs> conduction back up through that area that was previously uh, refractory. So um, here's you see this graphic, and this graphic usually represents reentry in the Purkinje fibers. But um, so you have this wave of depolarization coming down here, and in the counter, it goes down uh, both sides of this area of non-conductive tissue, which happens naturally in the AV node. Um, we see it sort of unnaturally in patients who are infarcting. This is why the first four hours of MI is the highest risk, because you've got ischemia, injury, and patchy areas of necrosis. And those patchy area necrosis uh, create a, a potential circular pathway. Right? Um, 
And when do most people seek medical attention? Four to six hours after the onset of symptoms, right? What's, what's funny is, uh, you know, in different cities, uh, they've had a huge impact on training people in bystander CPR, but in over 60 years, there hasn't been any improvement at all in getting people to seek medical attention sooner. And they say that um, if you're at home alone, um, it takes at <coughs> least four to six hours before you seek medical attention. If you're at home with someone, it usually takes a minimum two hours. If you're in the office, it usually takes a half an hour. And uh, <laughs> because coworkers, you know, look at you and they go, you look like crap and they call 911. If you're in a mall alone, uh, usually that's, it's under half an hour because people just walk by, they see someone who looks like shit and they call 911 without even stopping to talk to people, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, callers not on scene, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's job security. Yeah. Anyway, I don't think we're at risk uh, that way, but but anyway. So, as I was saying, we've got this patchy area of non-conductive tissue. There's um, wave of depolarization hits it and goes down both limbs. So it may encounter some cells that are not fully recovered from the last impulse. Uh, the last time around, so it gets blocked, a unidirectional block. It goes off in the other directions and ends up depolarizing the rest of the myocardium and it repolarizes. Re but meanwhile, it makes its way back here and sort of makes it s through that area of previously uh, blocked tissue, but slowly. And when I say slowly, we're talking nanoseconds or milliseconds at the most. And then it re-enters tissue which has been depolarized and repolarized and gives rise to either a single ectopic beat, like a PAC, or an SVT. So if it goes around and around that circular pathway, uh, it'll, it'll result in an SVT. And oftentimes, um, the only thing needed to disrupt that potential circular pathway is just mess it up some way. So, you know, with a vagal maneuver, with a denosine, uh, uh, get them off the sofa and onto the stretcher, that's enough to do it. Sometimes you pull out a, an 18-gauge IV and they see the, the needle and may have a little adrenaline surge and boom, they're converted out of SVT. Um, so anything to, to alter, um, alter vagal tone at that point <coughs> will um, cause some vagal tone changes, will do the trick. So the pre-excitation syndromes, there's uh, wool pockets of white, mayhem fibers, and longanong levine. Um, where those fibers are and how they work is not important so much as just knowing that all three of these are accessory pathways that are not, that don't run along the epicardial surface like WPW, but uh, come off uh, either the AV node or the bundle of Hiss and uh, um, and um, can result in a tachyrhythmia. So here, Gary, this is what you were talking about. This is um, an AFib with WPW, which is pretty lethal because the heart rate can get upwards of 300. And this is a patient who's, if they're alive, they're gonna deteriorate into cardiac arrest very, very quickly. <coughs> and uh, the only treatment for this patient is to patch as quickly as possible and cardiovert. So how are you seeing that? <laughs> yeah, so. Um, we had some, I had a patient that had Okay, well, yeah, that's good. Was the patient on a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker? Yes. Yeah, that's what saved them, really. That's what saved them. So, so if we look at, um, look at lead two at the bottom, 
you can see it's irregularly irregular. That's the key to the diagnosis of AFib. It's the rate that really tells you that you're suspicious of, of um, WPW. So when you see AFib with rates upwards of 300, you know, where if there are at least two complexes that are five millimeters apart, almost guaranteed it's a WPW. That's really all you have to go by. You're not looking at short PRs, you're not looking at delta waves, you're just looking at the rate. So AFib with a rate under, you know, 200 to 10 or so, it's probably just a straightforward AFib. But AFib with heart rates hitting 300 sometimes, that's almost guaranteed it's a WPW. And SVT is a minimum rate, we're looking at what? SVT, again, for treatment purposes, as far as the directives go, 150, right? Mm -hmm. but, but you can get SVTs at 130 and 120. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, usually it helps if you see the paroxysm, if you see the, the abrupt onset, then you know for sure it's an SVT um, when it's at those slower heart rates. But yeah, but I've seen, I've seen SVTs 120, 130. Um, yeah. And the same goes at the opposite, right? Like, I used to have, there was, like, somebody that tried to sell me on if your heart rate's over 150, you're automatically, like, it's not a sinus tachycardia. Like, it can't be sinus tach at 160. It's a, an SVT. Yeah. And, like, and I'm like, so you're telling me when I run on the treadmill and my heart rate's at a buck 80, yeah. I'm in an SVT? No, 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 no. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with that statement. I agree with that statement. Uh, but the caveat is, it, we're talking at rest, right? Yeah. It's not normal to be a sinus tack at rest at 160. That doesn't happen. Not from pain. So almost guaranteed, even even 140 at rest, almost guaranteed it's an SVT. Not from infection, not from... Not likely, no. 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 But... So nothing's black and white, right? <laughs> I mean, I've had septic patients who've been volume depleted. Sure, they're going to have a sinus tack in the in the forties, one forties. But I'm we're talking about like a healthy twenty-five-year-old. We're talking about someone at rest yeah. who's not septic, who's not you know febrile at forty-six degrees Celsius or fifty-nine degrees Celsius, right? <laughs> who's who's got a tachycardia at one forty or one fifty, almost guaranteed it's an SVT. Uh, very unlikely it's a sinus attack. <laughs> Unless they're really healthy? Unless they're really unhealthy. <laughs> or they're on a sympathomimetic, right? To the fridge, to okay. uh, yeah, if they're on a sympathomimetic, like a methamphetamine or, you know, crack cocaine or something. Yeah. So just to clarify, uh, also if you see somebody that's uh, in an air complex tachycardia, yeah. Leave them alone or look for underlying cause, yeah. Yeah, you're looking for P waves. Now sometimes with SVT you can also get A V no or um, you can also get uh, SA nodal reentry. It's not as common, but uh, uh, you can get P waves superimposed on the on the previous T wave, and it's still an SVT. Um, you know, you can get this sort of thing happening here. What is that? That's a P wave. P wave. 
but still an SVT. Yeah, so, so context is important, right? Uh, sinus tack on the treadmill, sure. Um, but sinus, sinus attack of 160 at rest, eh, highly unlikely, right? Uh, nothing's black and white, and uh, there's always the rare exception patient, but most of the time when you're talking uh, tachyrhythm is a 140, 150, 160 at rest, almost, almost always it's an SVT, right? If it's a narrow complex regular tachyrhythmia. Because I, because we treated somebody, they hired at 210 over the weekend. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if you're looking for key waves or whatever, and even at that rate, you're not going to see them, right? Yeah, you're probably not going to see them. They have a little bit of notch key waves. Yeah. So that was a narrow complex regular tach yeah. tachycardia, and it was an SVT. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nobody mounts a, a sinus tach at 210. We had a lady that was like 90, and it seems like she was septic, and her heart rate was like 180. Yeah. You know, I always thought it was like 220 minus your age, but it totally seemed like it was sepsis. Yeah. Like she was like almost dead. Yeah. So that 220 minus your age, does that even make sense? No. No. If you think it's if you think it's, it's significant fluid depletion, even if they're normal tensive, if you give them fluid, you should yeah. see the rate change. If the rate's not changing yeah, 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 with fluid, then yeah. it's more like but a cardiac. People people go into SVTs uh, sometimes without a history. Uh, occasionally, heart, heart rate 180. I usually I'm usually suspicious suspicious of an SVT. Now the the other caveat here is be extraordinarily cautious about generally for tachyarrhythmias. Um, unless it's sinus tack, we don't give fluids. You don't give fluids to an SVT because you risk putting them into failure, right? We treat them with adenosine or we treat them with Valsalva maneuver or if it's a Y complex, we treat with um, amio or cardioversion if they're hemodynamic and stable. We don't generally give fluids for tachyarrhythmias uh, unless it's sinus tack. For bradys, yeah, they respond well to fluids, but if you end up giving fluids to a tachyarrhythmia, do it with extreme caution. Really, the focus is to disrupt the tachyarrhythmia. Really, that's our primary objective, right? There's actually nothing in the AHA guidelines that I'm aware of about fluid, uh, fluids and tachyarrhythmias. Because they're at the point where they, you know, the ventricles contracting too fast, they can't handle the volume they have. And uh, whereas in bradycardias, they can easily handle additional volume. So, so just be cautious. So uh, we talked about uh, delta waves and, um, a flutter, so rhythms like AFib and A flutter won't respond to um, Valsalva and adenosine because um, the only tachyrhythmus that will respond to Valsalva and adenosine are tachyrhythmus that are dependent on the AV node to sustain the tachyrhythmia. So pre excitation syndromes and AV node reentry require the AV node to sustain that tachyrhythmia. So if we can alter uh, conduction velocity in the AV node, we can disrupt those tachyrhythmias. So rhythms like AFib and A flutter are ectopic foci outside the SA and AV node, and they don't respond to vagal maneuvers or adenosine. Um, now, calcium channel blocker might work because it would limit the number of impulses that can get through the AV node much more consistently. Valsalva and adenosine are very temporary drugs, or very temp temporary treatments, right? <coughs> now, the only caveat about a flutter is that if you have a flutter with a two-to-one conduction, it'll look exactly like SVT. Um, and uh, anyone know what the heart rate is with an A flutter that looks like SVT? It's almost exactly, someone said it? 150. 150, yeah, yeah. 
So if you got a two to one connection, now a flutter, the trick with a flutter, one of the, uh, apart from just seeing the classic sawtooth P waves, the other um, diagnostic criteria is the, those flutter waves have got to be four to five millimeters apart, never shorter. If it's shorter than that, it's not a flutter, it's probably artifact, right? So they got to be typically classically five millimeters apart. And if they're five millimeters apart, if you get a two to one connection, you're going to get a heart rate of exactly 150. So if you see what looks like an SVT with a heart rate of 150, you should at least in the back of your mind be thinking this could be atrial flutter. You're still going to treat it like SVT with a uh, Valsalva maneuver. And um, if you slow the heart rate down a little bit with a Valsalva, then, and it is a flutter, you'll see the flutter waves. And then, you, and then you know not to go on to a second attempt at Valsalva and not to go on to adenosine. Because otherwise, your medical director is going to be wondering, what the hell are you doing wasting all that money when you know it's a flutter? Ante? What you said about the P waves and the 2 to 1 flutter. Yeah, so you'll see you know, what looks like sawtooth waves in a 2 to 1 conduction. One will be visible, the other one will be buried in the QRS. And uh, so. Oh, yeah. The flutter waves are always four to five millimeters apart, almost always five millimeters apart. And if it's shorter than four millimeters, it's probably not a flutter, it's probably artifact or something else going on. Um, yeah. Most patients that I've had that have had a heart rate of 150, where we put them on the 12 monitor, it's like nine times out of 10, the cannot rule out atrial flutter. Yeah. Because I guess it just assumes that it could be a two to one. I guess, like yeah. At one point, it even specified that it was an atrial flutter, but it was definitely just in one lead, it looked almost like a atrial flutter, yeah. but in the other lead, you could see it was clearly just a T wave mm. that would be misidentified as like a P wave. Yeah. And like other leads? Because it does look, if, so if it looks different and like different leads in the 12 lead, then it's not a flutter. A flutter would be consistent in all the leads? Not necessarily. Um, sometimes you'll see flutter in some way, some leads and not others. But here's the thing about um, the monitors and its ability to interpret rhythms. Um, the Zoles and the life packs are notoriously bad at interpreting rhythms, except for VF and VT. They're very good at VF and VT, but they're notoriously bad at everything else. What they are really good at is um, QTCs and access calculation, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, but other than that, not so good. Let's uh, take a break here and